So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to continue our series in 1 Peter. Today we're getting into chapter 4. We have two two more weeks into chapter 4. And then um, by way of an announcement, um, our family will be going on vacation. Yay, we're going to California. So... Uh, it's been a couple of years since we've done a whole family trip, and uh, so we're going to California. So we'll be gone, but we have uh, Fabiano will be here, um, and uh, he'll he'll fill in uh, for me while we're gone. But we appreciate your prayers. Uh, but we're going to be to this week and next week in chapter four, and then when I come back, we were going to have two weeks in chapter five, uh, and then we will be done with our First Peter series. Um, so 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 will be our passage today. 1 Peter 4, chapters, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. And God, we ask you now to, in these next moments, that you would help us to... um, not only to understand with our minds the words that we have just read, but that we would apprehend them in our hearts and that we would take to heart the words that by your spirit you caused Peter to write to these churches so long ago. Uh, and yet because they are from your, from your spirit, from your, their, your very words that they apply to us, as well, So help us to understand those, that we could do them and bear fruit in our lives to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Peter has been dealing with the issue throughout this letter, and we saw this in the, 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 several times in this series, but especially this last week, about how to properly respond when suffering... And not just suffering in this life, but suffering as it's related to persecution. How to properly respond to suffering and especially suffering in persecution. He's dealt with this in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. He talks about being um, uh, slandered, your name's being slandered and reviled. He ends this chapter... In verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you, but uh, rejoice in so far that you share in Christ's 
sufferings. So it's how to respond to sufferings in the face of persecution. And he says in this chapter, one of the main um, points of action he wants them to do in these verses, verses 1 through 6, is to arm yourself with the mind of Christ. It's what we see in the very first verse there. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And here, this, this, the uh, Greek term from which this one comes from, it talks about arming yourselves with, with weapons. This is kind of a related term. It doesn't uh, have to do with like literally arming yourselves with weapons, but... Um, but it still has the sense of arming yourself in preparation. So you can think of it as, well, what's the strategy or tactics and everything that go along with uh, uh, arming yourself toward a military engagement? What, what are, the, uh, what are the, the strategists planning and thinking through? This is that term here. I think it only occurs one time in the New Testament. And Peter is using it to say, arm yourselves with this thinking or this purpose or this form arm yourselves this way and he grounds it however in what he had just been talking about christ's sufferings christians are to follow a christ who has died we're to follow a king that had to suffer But not only do we follow a Christ who has died, we follow one who has risen and has ascended to the right hands, to the right hand of God above. Notice the previous verses, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then at the end of this chapter. Verse 22, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of the power of God with angels, authorities and powers being subjected to them. So you had this sufferings first and glories to follow. You have the cross before you have the crown. And so Peter, having just explained this about Christ, who is our example, as he says elsewhere in this this uh, letter, he says, now you arm yourselves with that same mindset, that same pattern of thinking that we have modeled for us in Jesus Christ. What grounds this way of thinking is the suffering of Christ in the flesh. And there are five parts to this arming yourself with the mind of Christ that he uh, brings out in the rest of these verses. First one is by dying to self or denying yourself. By dying to self and denying oneself and being done with sin. This is the rest of verse one for. So that's a very important word you see there because it's explaining it since therefore Christ suffered. And then he brings the principle here for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, when it says that we're to model ourselves, have the same way of thinking as Christ. And here it sounds like he's saying, so you suffer and therefore no, you don't sin anymore. We don't want to get the impression here that he's suggesting that Christ was a sinner himself and that now he is not a sinner. 
Christ was never a sinner. We see this in uh, 2 Corinthians, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, 1 John chapter 3. Many places it talks about Christ being without sin. Uh, however, having never committed a sin himself, he still did suffer for sin. It just wasn't his own. It was ours. He still suffered for sin. It just wasn't his own. It was ours. We saw some of this already in what we just read. Verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Earlier in the letter, chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example. This is what he's fleshing out more in these verses in chapter 4. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was defeat, deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Paul says it this way in Romans 4. He, Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake... He, that is God, God the Father, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin, so that we who had sinned might become righteous and declared as if we hadn't sinned. So the point Peter is making here right at the beginning and talking about arming yourselves with the mind of Christ is that we are to have the same resolve to break from our sin that Jesus had to deliver us from our sin. The same resolve that Jesus had to come and to set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, it says. Is the resolve that we should have in putting sin behind us. He's going to get to that a little bit more. And this is involved. Uh, this involves dying to self. Peter was there when he heard these words of Jesus in Mark chapter eight. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Peter being there, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If anyone is to come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross. And Peter says we need to likewise arm ourselves with the same way of thinking from Christ, since he suffered that way, that we should also be dying to self and denying ourselves. That's the first first way to arm yourselves is to say, spiritually speaking, uh, or to say uh, uh, to say 
in our spiritual mindset, we need to consider ourselves dead to our old and sinful life. So for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Second, by dying to self and denying oneself. The second one is to arm ourselves with the uh, mind of Christ by doing God's will the rest of your days. By doing God's will the rest of your days. This we see in verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This rest of the time in the flesh, he's talking about the rest of our days on earth, the rest of our time in this earthly physical body, or as Paul calls this, this tent that we live in. From this point forward, until Christ returns or until he calls us home, we are to orient ourselves not in one way, but in another, not in human passions according to human passions, but according to the will of God. What is meant by human passions here? Some of this is spelled out in the very next verse in chapter three. So we'll get to that here in a little bit. But they're the things that who they're the things that those who don't know God. Naturally do and continue to do. They're impure lusts of the heart. They're, they're craving for things that d- dishonor ourselves and dishonor God. It's lusting, a strong power to seek satisfaction that just derives not from the good that God wants for us, but the distorted evils that we think that we want. That's what's meant by human passions here. Peter says, that's not how you should be spending the rest of your days. To those who have come to Christ and have received him as the Savior, recognizing that he is the one who died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That means, Peter says, you cannot go by the human passions any longer, but rather to go by the will of God. The will of God. I like that this one's in singular and passions is in the plural. Uh, contrary to the multiplicity of passions, there's only one will of God for us. But there's two sides to this one will. Okay, so it's kind of, if I could give an illustration, I think we did this with the men's study when we were on a chapter on this. It's kind of like the moon. There's only one moon, but there's two sides to the moon. There's the side that we see. Uh, how many of you realized Did you ever, at what point did you realize this? Maybe for some of you, it's right now that you've never, we've never seen the other side of the moon because the way it circles around us, we always see the one side, right? So there's the the little, um, the image on the moon. It's the exact same every single time. Have you ever noticed that? Is this common knowledge? I think I was in college. Like I realized that for the first time. So. Uh, We only see the one side of the moon, but there is another side, but yet it's one moon. I think that's a good illustration to talk about the two parts to God's will. There's the part that he's revealed, and then there's the part that he knows that's secret that we don't see. So there's the revealed will, and then there's the hidden will. uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29 gives a good example of this the secret things belong to the lord our god but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law 
There's a whole bunch of information and knowledge and facts and data that God has that you don't know. But what you do know or need to know, he has revealed to us. So there's the two aspects to God's uh, secret will. Or there's two aspects to God's will, the secret part and the revealed part. Often, I think when we think of God's word, we're thinking of something mysterious that's, uh, that we, we need to kind of divine in some way. And in those instances, that is that maybe often is part of something that's his secret will that we don't uh, necessarily know about. I, I remember this quote from R.C. Sproul, and I like this. Um, in his book, Everyone's a Theologian. When I'm asked about God's will, and how many of you have wondered what God's will is for your life? Like, where should I go to school? What, what school does God want me to go to? What, uh, these are two really nice, pretty girls. Which one do I, you know, I can't have both, so which one? You know, do I, do I date or seek to marry? Um, he says, when I'm asked about God's will, would, he would be getting questions often about this. Well, which, which person should I marry? What school should I go to? Which job should I take? I reply that I cannot read God's mind. However, I can read God's word, which gives me his revealed will and learning and conforming to that will is enough of a task to mask to last me a lifetime. And so we do understand we should and do understand how important it is to do God's will that he has revealed for us. Jesus says. In the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father is who who is in heaven. A little bit later from that, the crowds were sitting around him and he said, your mother and brothers and are, are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is not a secret hidden will. This is the revealed will that God has given for his people. Or as Paul writes in First Thessalonians, for you know what instructions he gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. I love this statement. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Your being set apart, no longer conforming to worldly passions. But doing what God wants for you to love him, trust him, receive the gift of his salvation for your sins, and then to walk in accordance to the ethics that he wants us to, to abide by. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Or here it would be the lesson that we would have for this. Commit each day of your life in this world from this moment forward to following God's will and not your own passions. This is the daily battle. We're to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Jesus himself followed the will of that the triune, the, all the other persons of the Godhead, had for him. John's Gospel. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. 
saying that Jesus here in human flesh came to do the will of the Father who sent him. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus did and accomplished the will of God. And so Peter's saying here, likewise, um, as Matt, well, let me add one more verse here of, uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane, moments after or right before his arrest, when he went and he prayed by himself. And we know this prayer, Father, if this cannot pass uh, unless I drink it, yet your will be done. Peter's saying here to us, to this church from long ago, from this moment forward, the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer live for that, but live for the will of God. We'll make these, these psalms our prayer. Psalm 40 and Psalm 143. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. So we want to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ by dying to self, denying ourselves, by doing God's will all the rest of our days, and by being fed up with sin. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Okay, so you get, you get this, is kind of to say this a little colloquially, to say this, you've already spent enough time Doing the old things that you used to do. The time, you, it's sufficient. Whatever time you've spent in your life of following your own human passions, however long that is, whether you're 50 or 40 or 14, at any point, you've already done enough, Peter says. So stop doing them. He continues, verse 3, by listing some of those human passions there. And let's just kind of go through some of these a, a little bit. Living in sensuality. Okay, this is licentiousness. It's sexual overindulgence. It's outside the bounds of what God has designed it for. And it's not just committing in it, it's living in it. Living in sensuality. Making it central, another way to say that would be is making it central to your own self or your own identity. Jesus identifies this, he uses this word as one of the vices that destroys you from within. In 2 Peter, he uses this term to, is describing the chief sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that story from Genesis. So living in sensuality, passions, it's the same word that we just saw in, in verse 2 of human passions. Drunkenness, characteristic of a Gentile way of life. Jesus warned against this, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness, he said, and the cares of this life. Paul warned of it, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Orgies, this is like a excessive uh, excessive feasting is the word here, um, but we're not talking like, you know, an, an Instagram worthy dinner party. This is be uh, carousing and revelry and drinking parties 
It's the next word. Basically, these, these last two are just the re respective locations of the previous three. You know, so sensuality and passions, orgies is just the place where that happens. Drunkenness, drinking parties is the place where that happens. And lastly, lawless idolatry. Which many of Peter's congregation would have been involved in. So this list is not exhaustive. There's, there's other like it's in, others like it in the New Testament. But, but the general idea is the same. And what's interesting in all of these lists, these vice lists, they call them in the New Testament. What's interesting in all of these lists is you read it and you go, this was written 2,000 years ago. And yet you read it and you go, that's not vastly different than what you'd find today. It's amazing how consistent sin looks all throughout history. 2,000 years looks basically the same. But for Christians, part of arming ourselves with the mind of Christ is to look back on those things and say, that's no longer part of who I am. I've, of those things, I've done a sufficient amount already, more than enough. I've already spent enough time with those things. Those days are done. So should we do what Peter advises us here and being fed up with those things? Number four, fourth of five things that we do to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ by anticipating the shock re response from unbelievers. Anticipating the shock, the shock response from unbelievers. Verse four and five, with respect to this, they, that is these Gentiles, he just mentioned, which is his code term for unbelievers. With respect to this, these Gentiles, these unbelievers, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. A couple of terms here to help us think through this. Two of them are the reactions from the outsiders. One of them is a reminder by Peter of the consequence for them. First one is this, perplexity. This confusion and bewilderment and puzzlement. They're surprised. They think it's actually strange that you do not do these sorts of things. The second one is blasphemy. Now, why do I put that there? Because, because that's actually the Greek word that Peter uses here. To speak evil of other people. It's used for, for God, you know, for blasphemy against God. But the other uses of the term mean to, to defame or revile or slander or to insult. And Peter's already told us that we are to expect this, right? Chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the days of visitation. Chapter 3. He's warned us the same thing, having a good conscience, verse 16, so that when you are slandered, and this is a different word, slandered, those who revile you, yet another different word, when they revile your good behavior in Christ, uh, your good behavior in Christ may not be put to shame. Notice that in these verses uh, that they speak evil against you. And they will slander you. What are they slandering you and, re and reviling you for? For doing good deeds. For good behavior. Here in chapter 4, he says they will blaspheme you for not doing bad behavior. 
They're going to speak evil against you either way. Whether you do good things or whether you avoid doing bad things, they're going to speak against you. But then Peter wants to remind them, lastly, and here's the last term, accountability. Accountability. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account to Jesus when he returns. He's the one who is coming to judge the living and the dead. So we must anticipate that outsiders will judge us and will assume the worst about us and hate us and malign us and slander, slander us and blaspheme us. And we need to be mentally prepared for it. To arm ourselves with the strategy going in. But we also need to remember that they will be accountable for that. And that's not something to rejoice in. It's something to be assured about that as we are experiencing these, this harsh treatment from them that God sees and he knows and that they will be accountable for it. We don't rejoice in it. Actually, we should pray for them to, to escape. So here's the lesson here. Living a godless lifestyle may win approval from the crowds, but will come under the judgment of God. Living a godless lifestyle may win approval from the crowds, but will come under the judgment of God. So arm yourselves by anticipating that shock response from the unbelievers. And lastly, arm yourselves. Okay, you arm yourselves with the mind of Christ by arming yourself with the reality of the hope of eternal life. Arm yourselves with the real hope of eternal life. And this is how Peter ends this little section in verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, Peter sometimes writes some very confusing sentences, and we have the English Standard Bible, which attempts to try and translate it word for word as best they can. And so sometimes these need a little bit of unpacking. And so let me un unpack this a little bit here. Um, but let me do so by starting off with this question, a common question. Maybe you've, you've asked this question. Maybe you've heard somebody ask this question. What good... What good is the salvation of a Christian in the Christian life if we're going to physically die anyway? The, you, you know what I mean? Like, so, um, you know, if by faith we have eternal life, then why do we still die physically? So, have you ever asked that question? You know, like, if we're a Christian, we're going to get eternal life. Why don't we just kind of go, boop, we're just taking it and, you know. We get a new body and a new life like instantaneously. Why are we died and buried and all those things? Well, the answer is kind of complex, but it might help to understand a little bit what Peter's getting at here. Everyone has to die in the flesh in order to get to the judgment. We read this verse last week, Hebrews chapter 9. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Death, physical death, to, precedes the judgment. So then what does faithfulness to Christ in this life matter then? Peter's answer is to that question here. It's a complex sentence, but let's break this down. To those who are dead, 
Okay, notice that it says that. The gospel was preached to those who are dead. What does that mean? Well, the gospel was preached to those who are spiritually dead. Some interpret it that way. I don't think that that's it. The gospel was preached to people who have died. Meaning they died and then the gospel was preached to them. So there's a second chance of salvation. I don't think that that's what he's getting at here. In the context, the gospel preached to those who are dead means to Christians who heard and accepted the gospel while they were still alive. And had suffered persecution for their faith, but who are now dead at the time of Peter's writing. Does that make sense? So the gospel preached to those who are dead. This is why the gospel was preached to those who have now died. They, the gospel was preached to them and they received it. Notice what it says here. The way people are. That though in the flesh... Though judged in the flesh the way people are. The judged in the flesh is suffering the judgment of death in this earthly life. They died in the midst of uh, the physical abuse from the ungodly. They died physically. That's what this means. Judged in the flesh. The way people are. It, it's literally according to men. I like this, this translation, according to human standards. Or this, unbelieving people of this world had judged them worthy of death and unworthy, uh, worthy of death and unworthy of living. Yet that they might live in the spirit, although they died physically, they are alive in the spiritual realm, so to speak. They are granted eternal life. What kind of life? Well, the next, the last phrase there, the live in the spirit the way God does. So God, the author of life, has given them this. So um, let me kind of give an expanded paraphrase of this verse, if I if I could. Though they, verse six here, uh, for this is why the gospel was preached even to the, those who are dead. Uh, although they suffered judgment in this earthly life, they die just like anyone else does. But, but in the midst of the physical abuse or persecution of the ungodly, the people at, at Peter's writing, they had died. Um, they will enjoy a new resurrected life from God in the spiritual and heavenly realm, all because they believe the gospel that was preached to them. Or... One commentator says, although they might be judged in the flesh in the eyes of human beings, they live in the spirit in the eyes of God. So here's another. I actually had two attempted paragraph uh, statements. So let me let me read my the Aaron Scott Mears expanded translation paraphrase. It was because of the reality of the final judgment that he just spoke of in verse five. That the gospel was preached to them so that those who received the gospel and trusted in Christ while they were still living, but who suffered persecution for their faith and have died, although they died physically like everyone else does, they live because God, the author of life, has made them alive as surely as he lives. This he did through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and all who believe in Jesus will be raised like he was. Or the New Living Translation. But remember that they um, will face... I'm reading verse 5 now. But remember that they 
will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. That is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the spirit. I think that's a good one too. Which is amazing because it what Peter's seems to be getting at here is that the real, like the efficacy of the gospel sees its full expression after we die. What a reassuring thing to, to hear if you are suffering persecution, a fiery trial, even if it included possible death, to go, you know what, when the gospel's really going to take off, it's when that, when that happens. All people, Christians and unbelievers, die. And all people, Christians and unbelievers, will face judgment. The difference is that those who believe the gospel will be saved from final condemnation. So those to whom Peter is speaking here, or of whom Peter is speaking here, are those who will be vindicated by Christ himself at the judgment through their faith in him. What an assurance. What... What an assurance that is for believers who trusted in Christ. Just as Christ was crucified and made alive in the spirit. Remember, arm yourselves with the mindset of Christ. You realize, wait, actually Christ suffered death and was raised to life. Christ was crucified, but was alive in the spirit, raised from the dead. Believers may suffer physical death, but in their spirits will remain alive and enter into the promised eternal life. Again, what an assuring, what an assuring words. You remember from First Thessalonians chapter four, Paul had to write to them to talk about. Wait, wait a second. You had Christians in this life who died. What's going to happen? Are they going to miss the resurrection? And Paul had to write to reassure them and said, No, they're not. They haven't missed anything. So what an assurance we have for those who have died and gone before before us. But but this is a, the, the other. The other side of this coin is how important is it to make that decision for Jesus in this life? If you don't receive the offer of Christ's forgiveness through faith in him before you die, it's too late. So brothers and sisters... Arm yourselves with this genuine hope of the reality of eternal life. Well, here's a way of summarizing this lesson. Living a godly life will be negatively evaluated by unbelievers, but will win vindication from God. That though judged in the flesh the way they are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And requires a resolve for us to suffer it need be. Which is his main point of this whole passage. Brothers and sisters, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. Die to self. Deny yourselves. Take up your cross. Put the human passions behind you and follow God's will the rest of your days. Be fed up with sin, knowing that you've sinned more than enough. Anticipate this shock from unbelievers. 
but arm yourself with the reality of the hope of the eternal life we have in Christ. Amen? Let's stand for closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your powerful word. We thank you that in every word and phrase is packed with so much meaning and so much application for us in this life. God, may we take what you have written here at the hand of Peter. May you take what we have read and reflected on and help us to apply it in this world in the difficult and trying situations that we are experiencing we pray that by your spirit you would empower us to with the strength and courage that we need help us to live in a way that honors you and we ask all of this in the mighty name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. And amen. Brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.